Brothers and sisters, hear the good news. God is gracious to forgive and to renew the covenant with you unto himself. He loves you and sent his only begotten son into the world to give you life, an eternal life in the presence of the true and living God. As we look upon Jesus by faith, we are saved from the judgment that sin deserves and the wrath that comes because of sin. God loves you and brings you into a covenant relationship with himself, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You now know him and have union with him. Jesus prays for you, and he, along with the Father, have put the Holy Spirit into your life because of the covenant that he has made with you. Brothers and sisters, having truly confessed our sins, God himself promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, and the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe this and rejoice. God's people say, Amen. God's word to us this morning begins in the 42nd chapter of Job. Job chapter 42, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Job answered Yahweh and said, I know that thou canst do all things, and that no purpose of thine can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask thee, and do thou instruct me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see thee. Therefore, I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. And it came about that after Yahweh had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends. Because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job will pray for you. For I will accept him, so that I may not do with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did as Yahweh told them, and Yahweh accepted Job. And Yahweh restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and Yahweh increased all that Job had twofold. Then all his brothers and his sisters and all who had known him before came to him, and they ate bread with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all the evil that Yahweh had brought upon him. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. And Yahweh blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. And he had seven sons and three daughters. And he named the first Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuk. And in the land, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters. And their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his grandsons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. We'll turn now to the New Testament in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. In verse 1. And when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
We'll turn now, if you would, to the back of our bulletins. Read together as a congregation, Psalm 21, verses 1 through 7. Psalm 21, verse 1. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exults. You have given him his heart's desire, and have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you, and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. If you would bow with me in prayer. Father, we come before you, the Most High God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, and we ask that you would speak to us. You are a good and giving Father, so we pray that you would open our ears and let us hear the words that bring life. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. So baptism is on the mind, and we have four new children that are added to the role in the name of Christ. I was baptized here 32 years ago in the very same spot by the very same man. <laughs> I've been thinking about, about baptism and particularly about the baptism of Christ. So if you remember what happened when Jesus was baptized, the heavens opened up, the Spirit came down in the form of a dove. He hovered as he did at the very beginning of creation, showing us that a new world was being made there in the person of Christ. And God issued forth these words, This is my beloved Son. We talk about baptism as an adoption ceremony in which this proclamation is made, This is my beloved Son. We come as children before the Lord. And as we heard, we all enter, no matter what, our age, we enter as children, having the name of Christ placed upon us, and we bear that name. And God calls us as sons, but he doesn't call us to remain immature in our faith. Instead, today we come for the last time to the epistle of James. I'm a little sad to leave it behind. I think I missed a lot. But I want to I want us to think about this epistle as a whole and James' call to us within this construct. God has called us, whether today the name of Christ, you were added into that name, or whether it was 30 years or 80 years ago, God calls us in the book of James to a maturity, so to grow up within that name, within the household of God, so that we rightly represent it. And within that context, James is bringing us to the idea of what it means to be a king. And don't get antsy, I'm going to talk about that a little bit and make sure that we're, we're all on the same page there. But first, I want to direct your attention back again to the book of Hebrews, and specifically Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to read the beginning and the end of the book of Hebrews. Starting in verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 2. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and you have appointed him over the work of your hands. You have put all things in subjection 
under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. So, of course, he's referring to Psalm 8. You've crowned him with glory and honor. God made man, the son of man. And he says, who is this man that you're so concerned about him? And yet, he who was a little while lower than the angels has been lifted up and crowned with glory and honor. And you've appointed him over the works of your hands. And it's a reflection all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. This is what God made man for. But in verse 9, he says, but we do, we don't, we don't yet see this. We don't see this reality yet in the book of Hebrews, but we do see him, Jesus, who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely this man, Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, by the, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to mature the author, the prince, the leader of their salvation through suffering. So we don't yet see all things subjected to him, but we do see Jesus, the one who has been made for a little while, lower than the angels, and yet, through suffering and death, he has been lifted up, he has been exalted, and the crown of glory and honor has been placed upon his head, and we see then the purpose. Through all of this, there's a redemptive purpose. He does this, he's matured through suffering and death so that he might taste death for us, but also so that he might bring many sons to glory. We come as children, and Jesus leads us. He's the one in front. And so all of the disciples, when he called them, what did he say? He said, follow me. Where I go, you go. What I do, you do. And so Jesus leads us in this suffering and death to the answer of Psalm 8, to the answer of Genesis 1, to the crown of glory and honor. And in so doing, he brings us, sons to glory. And he does it by maturing us just like Jesus was matured, perfected through obedience in suffering to be crowned with glory and honor. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. And here at the end of the book, we see the same language. Therefore, since we've received so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance, with steadfastness, the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author, the prince, the trailblazer, and maturer of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the same, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. So at the end, we see the same thing. Jesus was brought through suffering and death. He was matured first that he might bring us along behind. First, we must be cleansed, our sins washed away, and then he calls us as sons to follow him. If you would turn with me now to the book of James. This is the subject of the epistle of James. We don't see it up front and center, but if you would think again with me one last time about what James is calling us to. In the midst of all kinds of suffering, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter all kinds of trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let that endurance have its mature outcome so that you may be mature and whole, lacking in nothing. And this is the outcome, verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So this is the end. God gives the crown. Remember, Jesus was given the crown of glory and honor through suffering and death. And he says, this too is for you who follow in his footsteps. There's a crown of life. Blessed is that man who perseveres 
under trial, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. Now, within the hearers of the book of James, remember, this is the church outcast. They're under immense suffering. Stephen has just been put to death in front of their eyes, and they're being cast out of their houses. They've been removed from Jerusalem. They're being imprisoned. There's orphans. There's widows because of the persecution. And James writes to this church, a church that's filled with thousands of believers that are children. They were added unto the church by the thousands. And there hasn't been a great lapse of time. There hasn't been 60 years of maturity. They're children. And God sees fit to bring them this trial, where they lose their homes, they're turned upon by the very ones they used to look to, and there's trouble. And in the midst of that trouble, James writes. Now, if you would, I want to turn to uh, Mark chapter 10. We'll come back to James in just a minute. Mark chapter 10, verse 35. And James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's a good lead-in. My children do that sometimes. They're not usually quite that honest. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit in your glory, one on your right and one on your left. They're asking for the very thing that the author of the Hebrews is talking about, that we may be with you in your glory. You're going to be crowned with glory and honor, and we want to be with you there, on your right and on your left. And remember here, Although there's disagreement about who the author of James is, at least one strong possibility is that it's this James, James, the son of Zebedee. James, if you recall, these two are known as the sons of thunder. And this is what they ask. They say, we want to sit on your right hand and on your left in your glory, in verse 38. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. And they said to him, We are able. Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right hand on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. This James, as church tradition goes, was beheaded, and he was one of the first martyrs, the first of the apostles to die very early. So if the date of James is early on, and James the son of Zebedee wrote it, that means that he was beheaded in the name of Christ not many years thereafter. He followed Jesus in this baptism, the one who wanted to receive the crown of glory and honor, and he did. James is calling us to that kind of rule and reign where we walk through suffering, and Jesus teaches and trains us through that suffering and death and lifts us up into glory. And James, you may remember the story in Luke, they're going about and, and, uh, and there's a bit of a hiccup and James, James and John, they come to him and they say, do you want us to call down heaven, fire from heaven on these people? We'll just burn them up and take care of this. And of, of course, Jesus says, no, that's not the way in which this kingdom is coming to pass. And so by the time we get to our epistle, James has learned that lesson and learned it well. He's learned what glory means. So turn back with me then to the book of James. And throughout, throughout our time here, because I taught the first sermon a year before I moved here, I never gave you an outline to the book of James. So we're going to try to do that today here at the very end. But what I want you to notice, and, and this, is, this is what I've come to in, in James. So we know the call of James. He wants us 
as children to grow up, to see the suffering of God as a gift that brings us to maturity. And because we see that, we can rejoice in the midst of all these kinds of sufferings. And there is one, there is one theological foundation which cannot be moved, upon which the entire rest of the epistle hinges. And that's what happens in the first chapter. That's what he says in verses 13 through 18. There at the very beginning, we must know this one thing. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. That means that when Stephen was being stoned to death, the Father of lights was there. There was no variation. There was no hiccup in the plan. That means that when those thousands of childlike Christians were cast out of their homes, removed, and it looked like Satan was having victory, the Father of lights was there bestowing good gifts. If we do not know that, we cannot follow anything else in this letter. You have to know that, believe it, trust it at your very core, because if you don't, when trial comes, the temptation, the self-deception will arise that God is not good. And that the thing which is being withheld, the trial that we're going through, is more than God intends. And so there is a temptation then to circumnavigate God's plan, to escape the trouble. And we're tricky people, full of hypocrisy, able to deceive ourselves. And so we, above all else, have the ability to self-justify that kind of deception, to name it as something good and right, and you see it all around us. You see it done in the name of love. After all, God is love, we say. So therefore, and you can fill in the blanks. So we have to know this. Starting out as children, God made us. God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, he is the one that brought us forth by his word. And there is no escaping this one fact. Every good thing comes from him. And for those that love him, everything he gives is good. So every trouble, every trial is good. It is good for his children, and it is given with the intent, intent of bringing us through to maturity, of growing up children into kings, able to be crowned with glory and honor. So that's at the basis. James, he reminds us, he assumes us, he, he alludes back to it, but we have to know that. Now, within the rest of the book of James, so chapters 2 through 4, 2 through the beginning of 5, the, the, the heart of his epistle, there's a lot of ways to organize this. You can, you can organize it by being quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. I think, though, that my, my preference is to think about this and uh, chiastically, go ahead and groan. Cue the groan. But let me, let me lay it out for you. On the bookends of this central part, so in chapter 2, if you recall with me, his admonition is, my brothers, do not hold your faith in the Lord of glory with an attitude of personal favoritism by showing face. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring dressed in fine clothes and there comes in a poor man with dirty clothes and you pay special attention to that one, you have become a wicked judge with evil motives. So here in the very beginning, he comes to us with this distinction that's easy to make between rich and poor and particularly in the midst of trials. For those that are suffering, it's easy to make a judgment, conscious or unconscious. Con conscious in which we, we try to save ourselves from trouble by bowing down to the ones that it, it seems like God has blessed. And that can come in the form of riches, but it can come in many other forms as well. The heart of religion that James teaches us is bridle your tongue and care for the orphan and the widow. This is true religion to keep yourself unstained from the world. It's not by clothes or finery or riches. It's not even by theological learning. It's know this. This is true religion. Bridle your tongue. Take care of the orphans and the widows. 
And so here at the very beginning, he says, you have become judges with wicked motives. Now, if you pay attention to your children, you'll notice that they do not have the ability to judge well. And so when they judge, it's very one-sided. When they judge one another, it's not done according to the righteous judgment of Jesus. And so that's what happens here in the beginning. These children, they make wicked judgments, and they're based upon this, the inklings of this self-deception that suffering is not good and coming from the Father. And so there's this temptation then to elevate those who can help you escape. Now at the other end of that, if we're patient, so beginning in James chapter 4, verse 13, we have then God's judgment. So God is judging the very ones that they're fawning over. He says, come now in verse 13, come now in chapter 5, verse 1, come now you rich, weep and howl for your miseries are upon you. Their temptation is to take the one that are dressed in fine robes, the very, the very Jews who are oppressing them, and, and to treat them with honor and respect. And yet, if you're patient and you wait for God's righteous judgment, God says, I'm coming, and he speaks to them. The judge is at the door, the judge is coming, and he is going to set right the wrongs. And this is his judgment. He draws a line not based on what's external. Not like Job's friends who look at the situation that Job is under, and they immediately they come to judgments that are wrong. Instead, God, who knows the heart, comes and he speaks to these people, and he speaks in judgment. Now within that, so going back to James chapter 2 and verse 8. So that first section was chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, chapter 4, verses 13 through chapter 5, verse 6. Now in chapter 2, verse 8, he says, To as if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If you recall all that way, I think this was back in February, we talked about the royal law and the law of love. Now, what does the royal law mean? He's speaking then to those who would be kings. It's the law of the king. Now, James's hearers are assuming this role. The king is the one who makes judgments. The king is the one who discerns and distinguishes between good and and evil. And at the very first test in the beginning of chapter 2, they failed to discern rightly about what was good and what was evil. And here in chapter 8, he reminds them, if you are fulfilling the law of the king, the royal law, the law that says you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Now that royal law, the law of love, you can find it in Leviticus 19, if you love your neighbor you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that comes with all kinds of admonitions that are attached. And there's a law given to the king in Deuteronomy chapter 17, which says you shall not add to yourself horses and carriages and wives and gold and riches for this purpose, so that your heart would not be lifted up above your brothers. This is the law of the king. You are one with your brothers. You shall love your neighbor as yourself and so he admonishes them then in verses 12 and 13, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by this law, the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. He tells these who would be kings, he says, you are under this law. You may not elevate yourself above this law. And so thinking as children, we come back and he's admonishing them, learn at the foot of your God. Learn what it means to be righteous, to discern good and evil in the house of the king. He's the one that gave the royal law. He's the one that said you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so learn what that means there. And that automatically takes away the kinds of unrighteous, wicked motives by which we distinguish among ourselves, if we take care to pay attention that all that God has taught us through the law. And he says, why? We're judged by the law of the liberty, but this is what the law shows us. Judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Therefore, mercy triumphs over judgment. 
Remember, this law is the one that teaches you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you have no mercy, that's embedded in love. If you have no mercy for the poor, if you have no mercy for those who are down and out, you fall under the judgment of the law. And so in the end, mercy triumphs over judgment. To judge rightly, this has to be ground into our character. Now there is a, a second side of this in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. We see that same language at the end of this section, verses 11 and 12. Do not speak against one another, brothers. He who speaks, speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? So once again, we who would be kings, we who would be crowned with glory and honor, first, find yourself under the law of the house, under the law of the king. Do not complain against one another. Do not speak against one another, for there is only one lawgiver and judge. And so James admonishes us to put away quarreling, to put away murder that comes from wicked motives, so that when we finally ask of God, when we finally submit ourselves under him, the one true judge, the one lawgiver, put away the kinds of wrong motives that are based on our own pleasures and our own desire to lift up and justify ourselves, instead draw near to God. Chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. James, in thinking then about that law, and thinking about, about the trials that this early church is undergoing, he's admonishing them that as you grasp a hold of God's promises, that's what faith is. Remember, faith is reaching out, as we learn in the author, by, from the author of the Hebrews in chapter 11, is the essence of things to come, the assurance, the conviction of things not seen. As we reach out to what God promises, and God promises that we will be lifted up in the footsteps of our Savior, that we will follow Him through suffering, through death, into life, and be crowned with glory and honor. That is the promise that we hope for. James says, along the way, as you proclaim this with your mouth, as you proclaim faith with your mouth, remember that faith without works is dead. It's empty, it's nothing, it's useless, it's void. And so when we come and we grasp a hold of that vision that we see in Scripture. We come as children and we reach out for what God is promising. We're not there yet. Along the way, that means that work, the outpouring of our faith has to, has to come in fruit. So we spent some time on this going through each of the examples, thinking about how that works in Abraham. First, he proclaimed faith. He was circumcised. He was called a son of God, and God declared him righteous. But yet again, when God called him to sacrifice his son, that's the example here. It says that you see that faith was working with his works then, and as a result of those works, his faith was brought to maturity. And so faith and works are inseparable companions in which as we grow up, and the, the nurture and the admonition of our God as we sit at the footsteps of our Savior learning from His good word and we look deeply into it. If we hear and we do not do, that faith will shrivel on the vine and become nothing. And the end outcome of glory and honor, the end outcome of becoming a righteous judge alongside our Savior Jesus will not be achieved. Faith must give way in works to maturity. And so we can see in the person of Jesus through his life, he was obedient. The author of the Hebrews says that he learned obedience through suffering. You remember at the very beginning, he's baptized and God says, this is my beloved son. And as we come to the cross, there before it, 
he mounts up on, on the Mount of Transfiguration, and there's an additional statement made. Once again, the heavens open, and God the Father then makes the same declaration there. This is my beloved Son. But there, he adds something to it. He says, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Jesus, on that path of suffering, is being crowned with glory and honor so that now God the Father says, listen. He speaks words of life. And we see the fullness of that, of course, when he comes to the cross and in obedience he suffers all the way to the point of death and God lifts him up so that we all bow now at the name of our Savior Jesus. He's lifted up on high and he speaks to us even now in and through his word and we listen because he has been lifted up as the high priest, the mature one who's gone on before us. And he does that by reaching forward to God's promises just like we do. He was a man like us. Although he's God, he was a man like us and he learned obedience through suffering. Now on the other side of this, in chapter 3, verses... Uh, sorry, those verses are obliterated in my Bible. I believe that's verse 12 or 13 through the end of the chapter. If anyone among you is wise and understanding, let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the beauty of wisdom. I think that's right. That verse particularly is gone. My apologies. Remember, new Bible next time. Let him show by his good behavior his deeds, his work. And so as wisdom is wrought in a life of obedience, it comes forth in good work. And so James wants us to see that the life which grows maturity in a child whose name is added into Christ, the faith is grown, it's perfected in doing, in hearing and doing, so that we look into the law of liberty, the law of the king, and instead of having a hard heart, one that lifts up a fist and raises it against our God, the King, instead we submit ourselves to Him and we learn at His feet. We learn those rules and that by them they teach us through constant attention to discern between good and evil, to make right kinds of judgments so that on the day when we're crowned with glory and honor, we can discern rightly. And here, as you see that working its way in wisdom, the wisdom comes out in work again. And this kind of wisdom is not that which is, is not that, uh, sorry, is that which comes from above. It's pure, peaceable, gentle, reason, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And this is, this is it. The seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I want to pause here for a minute. He's calling us to wisdom. Remember at the very beginning of the book, you find yourself in trials, and this is the plan of God. He's taking you from immaturity to maturity through the path of sufferings. He's bringing you into wisdom and wholeness. But if any of you lacks that wisdom, ask of God who gives to all men generously without reproach, and he will give it to you. It's that wisdom, the wisdom that allows you to rejoice in the midst of trial. We were talking last night, uh, a Bible study for uh, the, the young people, about the nature of wisdom. As we grow from children to adults, God calls us into this kind of wisdom. And it's not the wisdom that gives you the clarity to escape from your suffering. That's not what wisdom is. That's sometimes what we think it is. That we have just enough problem-solving skills to avoid all kinds of suffering or to get ourselves out of the snare of the immediate trial that we're in the midst of. But that's not what James says wisdom is. If you lack of wisdom, ask of God and he'll give it to you. It's based upon first this foundational trust that comes as children that God is the good giver and then he gifts that wisdom like he gave it to Solomon to be able to see who is the enactor behind everything. It's God. So remember then briefly we have an example of learning that wisdom in Jacob, in Job, in Solomon. Jacob learned that wisdom when he wrestled with God by the river Jabbok. And he wrestled with God and he clung on to him 
there God himself wrestling with this person of Jacob, and Jacob would not let go. He gained wisdom, the wisdom to see that all through his life, everybody that he was wrestling with, all the ones that were bringing him suffering and trial, it was there God along, all along. And so he learned. He learned how to wrestle with God, and he was given the name Prince, the Prince of God. He was anointed with glory and honor. He was given a crown to follow along behind our Savior. There, by learning this lesson, that when we suffer, when these readers were suffering at the hands of the Jews, their struggle was with God. God was the one that was perfecting and maturing them there as they were cast out of their homes. And so that seed that comes in the faith that God is the giver of all good things, those who grow in wisdom, the seed that's planted, its fruit is righteousness. The word righteousness and the word justice are the same words. Righteousness and justice. We think about righteousness as, as a form of holiness, but righteousness and, and justice is maybe what we would think of as, as a, a kind of righteousness deployed amongst people. And so you have then right, right relationships, right judgments between one another. Now think about these readers. They're living in a state of complete injustice. They've been cast out of their homes. They're being put to death. And they're the ones that are clinging to Jesus. And this is what James writes to them. The seed whose fruit is righteousness or justice is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, keeping a hold of that thought, flip back to James chapter 1, verse 19. This you know, my beloved brothers, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness, the justice of God. So they're grasping a hold of what God is promising. He's promising Remember when Jesus came, he says the kingdom of God is at hand. That kingdom is one in which justice prevails, in which there's, there's mercy but filled with justice so that there's not this kind of activity in which there's, there's an oppressor sitting on top and squashing all those below them. And so rightly they're looking at what God promises in Isaiah and the Gospels and they're saying, well, we're not there yet. And yet James tells them, this is what God is doing. God is bringing about this kind of justice. This nation in which Jesus sits as king and reigns and rules and he brings us along with them, it's not brought about by our anger. And so when we, when we see sin, when we see injustice, and we see it around us, not to the level that these readers did, but still, our country is becoming more and more unjust. So that... Things that, that should be imprisoned are now celebrated. So that the victim becomes the one who is put in prison and the oppressor is the one who is called a victim. We, we live in that kind of society. And yet James admonishes us, this too is the gift from God for his people. Look on. First, be quick to hear, be slow to speak, be slow to anger, because the righteousness of God does not come by our anger. Instead, the way that God is bringing about justice, the way that God is bringing about this kingdom, the royal kingdom, where Jesus is king, it's filled with justice, is by the very path he lays out. By first, learning at the feet of the royal law, the law of liberty. By first, being quick to hear that law. By first, being slow to speak. So listening carefully, attentively, he says in verse 21 of chapter 1, Therefore put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, and in meekness receive the word implanted. And so this kingdom comes about by meek people. I think sometimes we see a tension between the way, I, I, the, the, the thing which God has promised, so the arrival at this kingdom, the arrival at kingship, and how he calls us to come to it. And so we have to choose then, well, are we going to live in a just society 
Or am I going to follow God in this path of meekness and gentleness and peace? And there's, there seems to be this inherent tension, but what James tells us is that the answer is no. The very way that God is bringing about the fullness of his kingdom in our midst is through obedience this way. Walking in the path of Jesus, who was silent as a lamb led before his shears. That doesn't mean that there's no word spoken. So think about Stephen as he's, as he's being tormented. He, he preaches with boldness. He preaches the truth. But at the very end, as they're stoning him and the heavens open up and Jesus stands to receive him, what does he say? He says, do not hold this sin against them. Stephen, with his face shining like an angel, God lifts him up, crowns him with glory and honor, and he gives him the wisdom to have right speech, to call for mercy on the very people that are bringing about his suffering. And in this way, in this way, God's kingdom is built. If you don't believe me, the sequence of Acts teaches us that that prayer, forgive them for their sins, as, as Jesus prayed, or Jesus, Stephen's prayer, do not hold this against them, it is answered, and it's answered in the person of Paul. Saul was the one standing there stoning him, and he is the one that's forgiven, that's lifted up, and he is the one, one of the stones added to the very foundation upon which the church is built, upon which the kingdom of God comes. And so God's kingdom expands, and justice comes, and it comes when Stephen makes that prayer. All right, did we get both sides of that one? So faith and works, wisdom and works, they go together. And so if we take that and we're tempted then to say that the kingdom of God is all about doing, James has a correction, and it's the very center of his epistle. He has a strong warning for us in chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. It's about the tongue, but he's reminding us that our role, as we learn as children, is to speak and act. So there's talking and doing. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by this law, the law of liberty. And so in chapter 3, in the very center, he addresses then the tongue. This is, how, this is how we rule, but it's with much danger. He says, Let not there be many teachers among you, my brethren, for as such we shall incur stricter judgment, because the tongue is powerful. That's the way God made it. God made it so that the little rudder in our mouths is the one that directs the ships, even even as a body, we're directed. We're directed as, as God speaks to us in the Word today. It's how God created things, by the tongue. So it's neither just evil or just righteous, it's powerful. And so at the heart of this lesson for his readership, in the midst of suffering, the thing that we're most tempted to do is to unleash our tongues in rancor and violence to go to the internet and to add comments and blogs and endless vitriol to add a fuel of fire on top of judgment of those around us. And James says, no. The path to the crown of life through the royal law, the law of the king, is to bridle one's tongue. Without it, religion is empty and it's useless. Now notice he doesn't say muzzle. There's a difference between silence and bridling of the tongue, meaning we are called to speak. Adam's very failure was in his failure to speak. But we speak with a bridled tongue. It's bridled by the Word of God. And so this is the lesson of wisdom for those that would be kings, to control our mouths so that out of them we speak life what's true and right, the kinds of judgments that discern good and evil. He says the man who's learned to do that is matured, whole. So that's at the very center. Because the royal law, the one who was to be king, you issue forth, you rule by words. We create and we destroy by words. And so even in the midst of that suffering, this early church... Their response is verbal. It's both speaking and doing. So they speak forth the word of God with boldness 
and it's accompanied by the works of faith. So, ending up, and, and finally then back in James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is empty, it's worthless, it's useless. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And so this is how, this is how we avoid self-deception. This is how we are unstained by the world. We devote ourselves to a bridling of the tongue and to watching out for those for whom there is no justice, the orphan and the widow. We cannot divorce the kingdom of God for what God says that it is, a kingdom of justice and righteousness and mercy with the path to that kingdom. We cannot be kings in it if we avoid the very rule that God has set forth for that kingdom. And that's found in taking care of one another and providing and defending those that are abused for whom there is no hope. And I'll leave you with just a, a couple comments there. If you take care of the orphans and the widows, if we commit ourselves to doing that, that is not a quick task. It doesn't come like with a word. You swoop in with a word and, and all is done. You take care of an orphan and widows, it's a lifetime's work. So take an orphan in, you're stuck for the remainder of your years. You're providing for them. This is how the kingdom of God is built. As we commit ourselves to this, to hearing and doing God's word, God will be faithful. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of, ask of God who gives to all men generously, and he will give without reproach. He will give us the wisdom by which we are built up to make and to be able to discern righteous judgment. So to the very end of the book, we see then the fruit of that. The fruit is this. When God fills our tongues with good things, when they're bridled and we're committed to the orphan and the widow, we come to God in righteous prayer, knowing His will, knowing the Word, and God hears and He answers. The rain falls and the earth produces fruit. This is how God's kingdom will come. If you would, stand and let's pray. Father, in this house, in your presence, we are sons and we are children. We come to learn at your feet, to be taught by you. Lord, you fill us up with this word to transform us, to give us eyes to see, so that we can take it out into the world to rule with your kind of rule that loves justice and mercy, that speaks and acts as those that are judged by the law of liberty, the ones with bridled tongues. And so, Lord, we pray that you would make this true in us. Lord, where we lack in wisdom, we pray that you would give it, that we wouldn't be double-minded, but that we would be committed to you, to all of your word, to the word that promises that the kingdom has come and the inheritance is given to the meek and the poor. They are the ones that are blessed, so help us to be those people. We pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.